Thank you, Mike. It is truly an honor to be with you all today. Um, this church has been special to us for quite some time. I didn't know anything about you until I went to Northland Baptist Bible College, now called Northland International University, and went to school with a young man named Ken McMasters. I think that name might be somewhat familiar to you. I think his father pastored here, and uh, I didn't know where this was. He said, Linden. I, don't, I didn't know anything about that. I just knew that he wasn't a Green Bay Packer fan, and therefore <laughs> it didn't matter to me. <laughs> and then, and while I was in uh, Illinois serving, working with my son down there, you called him to leave me and come up here. And I began to take a little more interest in what was in Linden, Michigan at this Faith Baptist Church. And then um, just recently, you guys have been especially a blessing to us as we've kind of gone through a little bit of rough, rocky roads out there in California. And we know that you have been praying for us and encouraging us, little words, you know, just what a blessing. Uh, You really are. And uh, you have something special going on here. I hope you appreciate that. I really do. Um, You know, a good church is a treasure. It really is. And a good church family, wow. You know, I hope you appreciate it. Your kids that are moving, you know, going on to college and leaving here for a time, you'll you'll miss here. You will. You may not know it yet, but you will. And um, and I hope that you will seek God's will for your lives as you seek where to serve, and maybe He'll bring you back here. What a blessing that would be. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. I know you're familiar with this book because I just saw in your bulletin that you're studying Ephesians on Wednesday night. Uh, I thought, wow, how fortuitous is that? That's of God because we're going to be in Ephesians this morning. Um, by the way, you've got some incredible teaching and classes going on here. I don't know why the Sunday school hour isn't as full in the morning as the worship service is. You ought to take advantage of those classes that are being taught here, whether it be on Sunday morning, Sunday school time, or Wednesday night. Take advantage of them, what, uh, what rich blessings they are. I think you're familiar with Ephesus. Um, the book of Acts, uh, Luke gives us the history of the founding of this church, he, and he records Paul's ministry there. Just like this church had a number of well-known or prominent people that served in it, so too did the book of, so did Ephesus. Um, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila served there. Uh, Timothy pastored there, and of course, you know Paul's work there. In Acts chapter 20, uh, Luke records how when Paul was coming back after having served in Ephesus, he went on and served over in the you know, Corinthian area, then he was, as he was coming back, he called the pastors of Ephesus together, and he warned them to be very careful uh, and watchful for the church, because there will be those who would like to destroy it, those who want to harm it. The church is under attack. It always has been, and it will be. Satan desires to disrupt, discourage, distract, destroy the church of Christ. He just does. We have an adversary, and we need to be very aware of that. Later, writing from prison, Paul was in chains as he penned this precious book of Ephesians. He wrote back to these Ephesian believers, and I think he wrote to to provide encouragement, to energize them, to refocus them uh, on, on what this is that God has given them. 
And he begins this incredible letter in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to land and park on Ephesians 4, but we're going to fly through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 as well, because it sets a foundation. Um, it's hard for me to, to do one, one-off sermons, because I like to build. So we're going to build quickly, and then we're going to park, okay? Um, he begins a wonder, this wonderful letter with a reminder of just how blessed we are in Christ. Look what he says in Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are those blessings? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, I could see a few nods as we were reading through this, but think about how blessed we are. God chose us in Christ. He predestined us for adoption. In other words, to make us his children. He redeemed us through his blood. He enriched us by making us heirs with Christ. And he lives in us, not just with us, in us, sealed with the promise of his Holy Spirit. Let those blessings, let that reality settle in your heart because it forms a foundation that Paul's going to refer to here in a little bit. In chapter 2, he admonishes us to remember and to appreciate what God has done and is doing through us. He says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from God, strangers to the covenant. You know, we were outside of Christ. And he says that we were, we were hopeless. We have no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And look what he says in verse 19. So then, in other words, because of all that, because of how then you've been blessed, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Another way of saying that, you're members of the family of God. Mike talked about the Dunford family. We're God's family. That far surpasses the Dunford family. We're members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. An often overlooked or unappreciated blessing that God gives us as believers is the relationship we have with one another. 
our focus tends to be, you know, vertically. Me, God. And that's all that matters. And that is a, that is a very, very significant relationship. That's the primary. But flowing from that is me, you. Us. Paul, talk, Paul uses words like built together, built on a foundation, a whole structure, joined together. These are all words that talk about a, an incredible blessing God has given us. In chapter 3, Paul calls this blessing a mystery. That is, it's an, it, it's an internal design of God that was previously unknown to Old Testament saints, but has been revealed to us. We have been made part of something greater than ourselves. Now get that. We, I, you and I have been made part of something greater than ourselves. Built together. We call it the church. And we would ask, well, why? Why would God desire? And he talked about this mystery from the ages past. So this was not, I got an idea. Why don't I do this? No, no. This was something God planned before he created us, that we would be built together into this holy residence, this holy tabernacle. Why would God do that? Why would God desire believers everywhere be united together in local assemblies called the church? Look what he says in chapter 3, verse 10. So that, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to his eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's glory. I, I love the singing this morning. Didn't you enjoy the singing? And, you know, when I was pastoring, one of the blessings we, back then, <laughs> the olden days, we had chairs up here, remember those days, and, and a pastor would oftentimes sit up here. I loved that sitting down there and being part of the singing, but I, I and so enjoyed being up here and looking out and watching the people worship and sing. And being there with you and amongst you and hearing the singing, what a blessing. You know, declaring God's glory is, is such a joy with the family of God. But God desires that glory to be shared to the world. Not something kept within our little four walls, but to be exploded out so that all can see it. That is the message and the mission of the church. And that's the message and mission of every believer is that people would look at us and say, boy, God did something really incredible there. Um, and Paul fervently prays that these believers will get this, that they would model it for all of the world to see. Look what he says in chapter 3, verse 14. It is for this reason. Paul gives a lot of purpose statements, you know, when he says, therefore, and, you know, this kind of thing. For this reason, he's telling the purpose of all this. I, this is why I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, in order that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, that is to understand with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in order that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Paul has invested the first three chapters of this letter to the Ephesian church by describing the theological foundation upon which God is building our lives. He called it the power that is at work within us. And this, this display of God's wisdom and glory was for all creation to see. And now when we get here at this ending of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, we come to a pivot point. We come to a, a crucial point where he presents the practical application of these truths to our daily lives, to our walk, to where we live. We can look at theology, and I, I know sometimes we talked about systematic theology this morning, and people's eyes roll in the back of their head, and they, you know, they begin to drool. You know, systematic theology. And you, you break out the theology books, and they're always massive volumes, and they use words that are hard to understand. But the reality of theology is that it ought to impact living. Theology matters because it affects our life. Truth matters. And Paul talked about this truth, this reality of what God has done, and he says, I pray that you'll get it. Let that get into your inner being. Let it, uh, let it fill and, and dominate your heart. It is the most important truth that, you know, that we can possess in our life. And he says, I pray you'll get it. And then he says, and here's the difference it'll make. Look at what he writes in chapter 3, verse 21. He says, for this reason, I'm sorry, let me back up to chapter 21. Now to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen? And we all say, amen. And then he says, I therefore, there's another purpose statement. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You know what he's saying there? If that's important, how you live ought to line up with that. If your life is for the glory of God, if you've been, if you've been redeemed individually, united corporately, and, and put out there as a, as a lamp for all the world to see, I urge you that your life ought to be structured in such a way that it's worthy of what God has done. That is, that, that, that's powerful. Speaking as a man who's been entirely captivated by this reality, Paul urges the Ephesian believers to, to strive. You know what strive means? That means to labor with intensity, to work to the point of exhaustion for this. You press for this. Strive to pattern your lives to live in a manner that's consistent with who you are. And you can, if you know, we're not going to do this, but you can flip through chapter 4 and chapter 5 and notice how many times he says walk. He says, don't walk as the Gentiles in the emptiness of their minds. You walk this way. You walk this way. I mean, you just go through chapter 5 and see how many times he talks about walk. That's all the practical application of that theology of those realities. And then he tells us, 
something that we want to look at today. What are our lives? What is this walk? What's it supposed to look like? You know, what is this, how does this new relationship we have with Christ impact how we now live in our world? That's, an, that's the message that Paul writes to these Ephesians. And I won't be dogmatic on this, but I think that the problem the Ephesians were having is that they were straying away from the, the, the adoration of that reality. Because in the book of Revelation, you remember, John writes there how Christ had said, I have something against you. You've left your first love in speaking to the Ephesian church. I think they let that reality grow cold in their hearts, that, that they no longer were enamored by that. So, how does this new life look? Let's read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and then I'm going to stop for a minute and we'll ask God to bless his word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What's this walk? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, please bless your word. Open our hearts to it. Pray these truths will, will ignite a fire in our lives and in our passions that we'll desire to live like this. We know it's not easy. We need your help, and I pray, God, for that. Please bless us now as we seek to understand what this worthy walk is like. Bless us in this, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope we realize, and I think you do, that a defining characteristic of the church is not its music. It's not its programs. It's not its youth group. Um, we want to have wonderful, all of those things, and you do. You know, and it's, and it's fine to be known, for, oh, you go to that church, they really sing there. You know, that's great. Or you go to that church, oh, their youth group, that's incredible. You ought to, you know, be part of that. That's fine, that's good. But the defining characteristic of a church that God admonishes us to here is its unity. It's unity. The unity of its members. Now, the word that Paul uses here in chapter 4 in verse number 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And he uses it again down here in, when he's talking about the pastors, how he gave these pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, building us up to we all attain the unity of the faith. That's a unique word. It's only found in these two places. And it means our oneness. Our oneness. Unity is the active, daily, shared experience of our reality in Christ Jesus that draws us to this oneness. And he urges every child of God to eagerly maintain this oneness. And I think that fact that he urges this is because this oneness is easy to let slip away. It's easy to drift away from this. There are so many things that divide us. Age, youth, and seniors. You know, sometimes 
You think, I don't know what's wrong with these kids these days. By when I was a boy, you know, and then the, the young people say, I don't get these old people. They're so far out of it. You know, the age can divide us. Economics can divide us. The haves and the have-nots and the want-to-haves and the don't-care-to-have, you know, that can, that can divide us. Education, entertainment, sports. Let's hear it for the Green Bay Packer fans in this auditorium today. <laughs> See, <laughs> sports can divide us. You know, there's all sorts of things that can divide us. Well, what is it that unites us? There's three observations about this unity that God calls us to that I think we need to understand. We need to understand the divine source of our unity, the divine character of our unity, and see a divine charge to pursue this unity. First of all, look at verse 3 and through 6 to see the divine source of our Christian unity. Paul writes, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's the source of our unity? Paul identifies it right here. You know, there's a lot of things that churches do to try to communicate a sense of unity. I was noticing the other day all the t-shirts that we have here that say, in one sense or another, I belong to faith at Linden. You know, the, I forget what all the different things were. We get t-shirts, we buy hats, you know, whatever. We put, we put little taglines on our websites, all to communicate a sense of unity. But the unity that, that Paul shares here, the unity that is real for a believer, is sourced in something far greater than a tagline or a logo on a shirt. It's something that is unbreakable, something I won't grow out of, something that doesn't wear out, and that is grounded in the glorious accomplishments of our Heavenly Father, who through Christ Jesus accomplished our union. He took of, of two and made one. He took of those who were at enmity with one another, aliens and strangers, and brought them and made them a family. He, he united us in a bond of peace. And he says to us, remember this. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant. And I underlined this in my Bible. But now, you were, but now in Christ Jesus, you once who were afar off have been brought near. There's our, there's our union. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. That's our union. Christ accomplished this for us. He is our oneness. He reconciled us all to God and made us brothers and sisters in him through his completed work, and that's indestructible. He is our hope. He is our understanding. He is our identity. He is our Lord. He's our Lord. Through Christ, God created a perfect union of imperfect strangers. But we need to understand, union is not the same thing as unity. I can be in a union, 
but yet not have unity. You tie two cats together by the tails and turn them loose, you'll have a union. But I guarantee you, you won't have unity. You'll have a cat fight. Unity requires something else than just being forced together. I know of families that, that have a union, but not always united. My wife had to pry my boys apart more than once. There was union, but there was not unity. One wouldn't give in. You know, the dominant one thought the little one ought to give in and say, Uncle, he wouldn't. And there was a, there was a cat fight. Unity is not the same, or union is not the same as being united. It requires a oneness of, that is of heart and mind. It's, it's like what Paul explained to the church at Philippi when he wrote in Philippians 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Same-mindedness. Sounds easy. Just think alike. And he's not talking about how we dress or what we like to eat or what sport teams we like to to uh, cheer for. He's talking about a oneness of mind in Christ Jesus. And folks, this is more difficult than it sounds. And that's why Paul prayed that we would be strengthened in our inner being. And then he gives us a pattern for what this Christian unity should look like. He tells us the divine character of Christian unity. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That conjunction, therefore, I like to always say, whenever you come across a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. Therefore points to what precedes it. It, it, it ties the coming instruction to the force of the previous truth. It says, because of chapters 1, 2, and 3, I urge you, therefore... To walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That word manner worthy, that's the word axios from what we get, we get the word axiom from. If we have engineers, scientists in our midst at all, you know what an axiom is. It basically means a governing truth. Because this is true, you can build this on that truth. And that's what Paul is saying. Because this is true, build your life on this truth. Walk worthy of that. Well, what does this worthy walk look like? How does God expect us to relate to one another in this, in this new relationship called the church, in this new family called Christianity? How do, we, how do we navigate this? Because the dynamics within a local assembly can be difficult. There are oftentimes differing opinions. Do you know how many churches fight over the color of the carpeting when it comes time to replace the carpeting? Or the order of the service? You do communion at the very beginning of the service? I know of churches that would fight over that. Everybody knows it's in the Bible. Communion is at the end of the service. 
You know, you know it's amazing the things we can fight over and that, we, that can divide us. Opinions and priorities that clash. Personalities can cause friction. Some are very outgoing and vivacious and others are more subdued and, you know, just leave me alone. You know, that can create difficulties. It's hard to navigate. Culture can create difficulties. You have a unique culture here that is totally different than California where I just came from. Or I should put it, they have a unique culture there that's totally different than what is right. (laughs) Cultural norms differ and they can create difficulties. Even spiritual gifts Paul talks in Corinthians and in Romans and in Peter about, Peter talks in Peter, not Paul, uh, talks about how we've been given different gifts. Well, someone who has a gift of helps or the gifts of encouragement can get very irritated with someone who has the gifts of administration or other, you know, the gifts of giving. And, you know, and those gifts can even become sources for difference. The diversity that gives this church strength and health can also be the diversity that causes the church issues to navigate. So how do we navigate them? Look what Scripture tells us. Walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Recognizing that one can have a union without unity, Paul gives us four attributes of Christian character that are essential to maintaining unity. Let's talk about them for just a minute. Why do preachers say that? Let's talk about them for just a minute. You know he's lying. He's going to talk about them for several minutes. So let's talk about them for several minutes. The first quality or the characteristic he gives us to this united unity is humility. He says, with all humility. Now note, he doesn't just say with humility. He says, all humility. Well, what does that mean? All is an adjective that tells us, you know, it, it, it explains or describes the type of humility we're supposed to have. Maybe one way of saying it would be with sincere humility, with genuine humility, with real humility. How do you define humility? Look it up in the dictionary and you're going to find it means being humble. Well, that don't help much. Um, What does Paul mean when he talks about all humility? Look what he says in other passages. In Philippians chapter 2. You've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. I think we'll put it up here on the screen, right? In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, maybe not. Let's go to it then. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, he says here, do nothing, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but, there's that contrasting conjunction, so instead of rivalry and conceit, in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. So we know that humility is different than selfish ambition or rivalry and conceit. Counting others more significant than ourselves. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, writes, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we, from there we know humility is the opposite of pride. What's pride? Pride, if we look at these verses together, it's an unhealthy focus on self. You can, you can be filled with pride and go around saying, I'm nobody, I'm bug spit, I'm worthless, I'm like a bump on a pickle, I serve no good purpose. That's pride, that's not humility. Because the focus is on self. When you're saying, I can't, I won't, you know, I'm no good, that's a, that's, that is an unhealthy self-focus. Humility describes an attitude that displayed toward, for, toward others that flows from a right perspective of self. It's the opposite of self-focus. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself, it's just not thinking of yourself. So what should be our self-perspective? Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says this in verse 1. You were dead. <laughs> you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's what I was before God saved me by grace. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you were, before salvation, you were following the devil. You may not have knowingly been saying, let's worship Satan. It's not saying that. He's just saying, as your life without Christ was going, you were going downstream with Satan. We went fishing last night. That's what I love about being back in Michigan. You can go fishing. Um, and we were walking upstream, meaning this current was flowing against us. And it took effort to lift my lazy old legs up over logs and through the muck and stuff as we walked up that stream. There was a force pushing against us. If I had turned and gone downstream, that would describe what Paul is saying here. You were, you were flowing along. Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. But God, God saved us. God changed that. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So the perspective that Paul is describing here is, I was dead. I had nothing, nothing worthy. I was going Satan's way, even though I was doing it ignorantly. But God gave me life. My life belongs to him. He gave it to me. It's his. He says in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man walking. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. So then what are we looking at here, Paul? Christ lives within me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That was his perspective on life. He says in Ephesians 2.10, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. I am the work God is doing for good, good works. And he, and he says in 3.1, For this reason, this is why I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, on behalf of you Gentiles, I pray for you. 
In verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. These are not mere words. These are the reality that Paul saw of his life. This is the reality of our lives. We were worthless. But now, in Christ, I have a life. Now my life is Christ. Now my life is for him. As one redeemed by Christ, I don't have a life apart from him. That's the perspective Paul urges us to embrace. Do we see that? The word prisoner means one who is bound, one who is chained, completely controlled by another. You ever been chained? Ever been bound? Ever been handcuffed? Yes. <laughs> You're helpless. Yeah, don't answer that. <laughs> but you're helpless. You're at the control of another. He can abuse you or he can protect you, but he will lead you around. And Paul says, as one bound by Christ, I urge you. As one redeemed by Christ, I urge you. So when we think about this whole idea of all humility, it's, it's this all humility that moves my focus from how something affects me or how something makes me feel to how it serves others, to how it honors God. You know, somebody from the church, your pastor comes up to you and says, I really need help in this area. And I've been praying about this, and I, I, I would really like to encourage you to, to, to think about this and pray about serving in, you name it, children's church, teen group, whatever. And right away you think, oh, no, no, I can't do that. You know, I, no, I'm no good at that. Where's your focus? Or we think, well, if I do that, that means that's, I would give up my Saturdays because I have to then prepare. And I, don't, I don't know if I want to give up my Saturdays. Where's your focus? It's humility that compels me to be willing to serve where there's a need, even though I may not be comfortable doing it. It's humility that makes me willing to serve happily, even though someone else may get the credit. Doesn't that irritate you when you do something and you work so hard to make something just right and somebody else gets the praise from the pulpit for it? No. It shouldn't. It's that God gets the glory. That's what should count, right? Then why do I feel offended? Maybe it's not that there's all humility in me. All humility, you know, is willing to embrace sacrifice. Serving God will sometimes be costly. But humility says, well, that's all right. It's not about me. It may mean, and you have to fill in the blanks, that's okay. Because I don't have a life apart from him. That's all humility. And he says, he goes on and he says, with all humility and gentleness. If humility is a quality to exhibit, gentleness is the way we're to exhibit it. If humility is the attitude, gentleness is the action. It carries the idea of harmless a genuine care for the spiritual well-being of another. And that's not just for the pastors. He's saying this to the, to the teenagers. 
He's saying this to the retired seniors. He's saying this to all of us. I love how the Apostle Paul described his approach to the Thessalonian believers. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, we were gentle among you. There's that word. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I know we have mothers here. Uh, Debbie and I just had the blessing of spending a day with my granddaughter and my great-granddaughter. See, I've always been a pretty good grandpa, but now I'm a great-grandpa. We, we got to spend a day with her and, and to watch my granddaughter caring for her new baby. It was so sweet. And, of course, gram, grandmas, great-grandmas on both sides were there, running on. Just That little baby had a need, and men, they were there to attend to that. Checking the diaper. Did you make the stinky? You know, and you know, just you know, just checking things, making sure. Oh, she's starting to fuss. Get the bottle. You know, there's that nursing mother's care for her children. Now, fathers sometimes have a hard time relating to nursing nursing mothers. So Paul says this in verse 11 of the same chapter. He says, "You know how, like a father with his children." We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. So part of this care that Paul talks about is not only being, being very conscious of a need um, to, to assuage a problem or to comfort, fear, and you know, meet needs, but also as a father to encourage and exhort. That's the dad who's teaching his son how to ride a bike or how to shoot a gun, or how to roller skate. You know, come on, get up, you can do this. Oh, that's not hardly bleeding at all. Rub a little dirt on it, you'll be fine, let's go. You know, that is also part of gentle caring. Well, it doesn't feel gentle, but it is because it's, it's designed or, or given with the intent to help you grow, and to take care of you, and to love you, like a father loves his child, like a mother loves her baby. That's what Paul says in using this idea of gentle it's an attitude and an action that's not at all self-focused, but it's committed to doing what's necessary for the good of others. That's what compels us to go to a brother who's overtaken in a fault. Galatians 6, 1, to try to restore him. That's what compels one person to go to another person and says, I'm really concerned for what I'm seeing in your life. Can I pray with you? Can I give you some advice? You know, and when that happens... Don't get all huffy and say, well, what business do you have sticking your nose in my life? I have every bit of business if you're a believer in Christ and you're my part of my family. We do that out of love. That's what keeps a church united. Part of that character. All gentleness, all patience, or all humility and gentleness. We, we, we do what's necessary. And for Paul, even if that meant being stoned or flogged or shipwrecked or hungry, what might it mean for us, for you? What, might, what sacrifice might it compel you to embrace for the good of others and the glory of God? And then he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. With patience. Well, what does he mean by that? Look what he says a few verses later in the same chapter of Ephesians 4. Look what he says in verse 13. This is right after he talks about having given us pastor teachers to equip the saints. And he says, he says here, until 
we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every, every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. When Paul talks about with patience up here in verse 3, or verse 2, I think the idea here is that, he's, that we need to be giving others the space they need to grow without becoming frustrated or discouraged or angry. It's like a parent does with his child. My, my, chi- my children did not know right away how to eat with a spoon and a fork. Food went everywhere. And so, of course, being a good father, I would whack them and slap them and push them around. No, no, no. Being a good father, I would pick up the fork, put it back in their hand and say, this is how you eat it. Now, with Mike, we had to put a cork on the fork because he would hurt himself. But, no, I'm kidding. He was a great fork person. Um, But we teach them, don't we? They make a mess of things. We clean up the mess. And we teach them again. And then pretty soon, they get it. Now, once they've been taught that, then we expect that, right? That's just all part of it. But that's patience, giving people room to grow without becoming angry and frustrated at them. So when we have a brother or a sister in our church, no matter their age, if they're struggling in a sin or they're discouraged or they're, they're distracted, we patiently and lovingly, whether they're a teenager or a senior, we lovingly keep guiding them and moving them in the right direction. Just as God did for me. Just as he does for you. So we don't grow frustrated with one another. Patience with those who are new in their faith. Patience with those who are discouraged in their faith. Spiritual growth is a process that we're all in. We're all in that path somewhere. And none of us are yet where we will one day be. So we need to be patient with one another. Paul said it in 1 Thessalonians 5, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. It's a quality we need in our church to keep that unity. It's how a family functions. It's family life. It's part of who we are in Christ. So when a teenager gets frustrated because dad or my teacher or this person in the church doesn't understand the struggles I'm having right now, be patient with that teacher, that dad. When that dad is frustrated with the kid because he doesn't see how important it is to clean his room or whatever, we're patient with them. That's what Paul talks about here. Patience with one another in love. Then the fourth quality he gives us. What time is it? It doesn't matter anyway, does it? (laughs) The fourth quality is bearing. He says here, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. And that does not just simply mean putting up with one another. Instead, it has the idea of sharing one another's burdens. Sharing the load. You see someone struggling with a huge load, 
you come and you grab the other end. You say, here, let me help you with that. That's what he's talking about here. That's what bearing with one another in love is. Humility, gentleness, and patience, they're just words if they're not fleshed out in action. This is the only verb in this sentence here. Bearing with one another is the action. It's the reality of family life. Problems will arise. But folks, the reality is we're not alone in them. Last week, Pastor Mike preached on the prayer of what? Do you remember? Intercession. You know what that is? Picking up the other end of the load. That is the bearing with one another. We're not alone as we battle temptation or as we battle discouragement or as we, you know, face the the realities of getting old or whatever. We're not alone in that. That's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of our unity. We're not alone. We have brothers and sisters in Christ here to do the heavy lifting with you. Not for you, but with you. Just like Paul said to the Corinthians, you know, they, the, 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 um, just as God composed the body, giving greater honor to that part which lacked, that there be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24. And that's why we intercede for one another in prayer. That, that's, that's why we, we ask people, how are you doing? You know, and, and then you stop and you look in their eyes and see if they're telling you the truth. How are you really doing? And that's why we, we can answer it knowing they really do care. Because we're bearing with one another. That's the beauty of this unity. That's the beauty of our church. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another, bearing with one another in love, it's a beautiful thing. And it's no wonder that a church that that exhibits these qualities consistently brings glory to our Lord. A church that exhibits these qualities, people will look at and say, wow, that's amazing. But that's what God is building. That's, what, that's the glory, the wisdom of God that, that Paul talks about in chapter 3. The worthy walk. And then he gives us this divine charge, eager to maintain the unity. The word eager is translated in another place in 2 Timothy as, as do your best. The image of striving hard giving it your all, all of your energy, all of your focus. Do your best or to you know, keep this unity. Why are we to work hard to maintain it? Because it'll erode if we don't. We'll slip back into the prideful way of thinking. We'll slip back into carelessness. We slip back into being abrasive and offensive. So Paul says, do your best to maintain this. Vigorously resist anything that erodes our unity. 
And he encourages us with this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So brothers and sisters, what are we to do? What do we do in light of this? Can I encourage you to examine yourself, first of all? Don't examine your neighbor. Don't say, this would be great for John. I wish he were here. Or boy, why, you know, where, why isn't my wife here to hear this? No, no, no. Examine yourself. Where is my focus? What wells up in my heart when my plans are challenged or frustrated? When someone calls me on my day off and says, can you come help with, with this? What wells up in my heart? What wells up when I'm asked to serve in a way that I don't really enjoy doing or I never thought about doing or don't feel qualified to do? What wells up? All humility? Examine yourself. Evaluate your words, your attitude, your action towards others. What comes out of your mouth? Is it helpful or hurtful? Is it sarcastic or is it sweet? Evaluate. How is my life helping their life? What difference am am I making in someone's life? Will somebody sometime in my life say, I am so glad that I met Bruce. He was a blessing to me. Fill in your name. Will someone be able to say that? Evaluate. And then explore. Explore ways to connect. Connect with others. We have community groups in this church. They're great ways to get to know one another more deeply. They're, they're, they're wonderful. Well, but they meet on Sundays. And you know my Sundays, I like to take my nap. Or I, that, that football. Football comes on on Sundays. I, I, you know, and they always seem to have those meetings at a time when there's something else. Wall humility? Be part of and explore ways to connect and invest yourself in others, in their growth. Can we do that? That's what Paul's talking about here. And that's how that's fleshed out, continues on in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. When he talks about husband loves your wives as Christ loved the church, when he talks about children honor your father and your mother, when he talks about servants obeying your, you know, those who are over you, all of that is this. It's an incredible book. If you haven't read it from, cover, you know, from beginning to end, read it every day. And ask God, Lord, where do I need to change? What can I do to bring you glory in my life? And as we do that together, wow, what a difference it'll make. You won't need a tagline on your sign or on your website or on your shirt because people will see it. And they will honor and glorify your Lord for being so wise and so good and so gracious. And that's why we're here.
chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever, to bring God first. Let's pray. Lord, when we read these kinds of admonitions, we're humbled. So often we come up short, but we realize we don't have to. Because you reside within us. You give us your word to guide us, your Holy Spirit to strengthen us, your, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us. We don't have to come up short. We can be what you created us to be and help us, Lord, to please do that. Thank you for this church. I thank you for the pastors, the elders, the leaders here that, that teach and, and lead and love so diligently. Thank you for the great testimony here. But Lord, help us to do better. Help us to honor you more fully. Help us to live for you more clearly. And Lord, as we close and go from here today, I pray, Lord, we'll flesh out the realities of these truths in a way that brings you honor and glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.